Morning, brothers and sisters. Hey. Glad that you are here with us and also online. Uh, it has been a fun ride for the last couple of months as we've talked a little bit about this series called You Asked For It and You Did. And we've had some really fun things. We've had uh, discussions about racism. We've had discussions about relationships. We've had Pastor Marvin. We've had Ann Cody. We've had Micah Winsler. We've had Dave Maxey. And I get to continue forward today on the topic of angels and demons. So we're going to have some fun today. I do hope you brought your Bibles. We are going to do some what I call Bible cardio. Uh, that means like if you've got your Bible on your phone, like that's cool, but get your thumbs ready. If you've got like a hard copy Bible, like, you know, you want to like lick a thumb and get ready to go because we're going to be moving across a number of different places in Scripture. <coughs> and we'll be diving in. And I want to talk a little bit about why are we even talking about this? Well, other than the fact that you told us that this is something that you want to talk about, one of the reasons we're talking about it is because our culture is very interested in it. Have you noticed like, despite the fact that in some ways our culture is moving away from Jesus as fast as it can, it all of a sudden has this very significant interest in the supernatural. Right? So it's like, we want a little bit of the kingdom without having to deal with the king. Right? But we like, man, we like us some stuff about angels and demons and possession of this and the exorcism of that. And this was touched by an angel and that wasn't touched by anything. And I mean, whatever, you know, like all those different things. Like, right? So like, if you just scroll through your streaming, Right? If you just like, I don't care what services you subscribe to, like if you just scroll through, there's like everywhere. There's all kinds of stuff. Right? Doesn't matter, like uh, if you're a gamer, like a couple of weeks ago, Diablo 4 hit, right? Like that was a big deal. And the really funny thing is, is the whole point is you got angels and demons and everything in between, and there is no mention of the name of Jesus. Very interesting. But we're also fascinated in the other direction too, aren't we? Like, I mean, I grew up in the 80s with, like, Highway to Heaven. Anybody remember Michael Landon? Yeah! Right? Michael Landon, kind of this, like, you know, like, working kind of a dude, like, walking around doing the Lone Ranger thing where he's, like, making everything better. He's really an angel in disguise. Then after that came Touched by an Angel. Anybody remember that? Yeah. So we are definitely interested. And even our whole culture is curious. You know, it's funny. I have a couple of young friends, both male and female, and they can tell you all kinds of stuff about angels. They can tell you about angelic numbers and angelic stories and angelic names. They can tell you about ghosts and spirits and ghost hunters and ghost busters. And I mean, like, they can tell you about all kinds of stuff. And yet, if you were to say, where are you getting your information? Almost none of it is coming from Scripture. I mean, they got like church history over here and tradition over there. And their grandma told them this story when they were around a campfire when they were five. And, and like it all kind of gets composited. And yet, most often, there's no scriptural source. So I do think we probably need to talk about this topic. But I think we need to be very careful about the source that we use to be able to get our information. And the interesting thing about that is you might know this, but Christianity, like we who follow Jesus, we're not the only ones who believe in angels and demons. Like Jews believe in angels and demons. Muslims believe in angels and demons. There are even equivalents in Hinduism and Buddhism and a number of other things. But for our purposes this morning, as we talk about angels and demons, we're going to go straight to source. We are going directly to the word of the living God. We're going to the scriptures. And I do think we need to talk about that a little bit. So here we go. First, 
um, so what does scripture actually say <laughs> about angels and demons? Like, what, what do we really need to know about them? What are they? Where do they come from? Like, like what do we really need to know? If we're going to say we're going to use the Bible as our primary source of information, then where do we start? Because the Bible's kind of big. And if you've noticed, right, the angels that are mentioned in scripture are mentioned all throughout it. I mean, like you got angels in the book of Revelation, you got angels in the book of Genesis, you got angels in between. Where do we start? What do we do? What do we, what do we need to understand? Well, the first thing we need to understand is, is that whether we're talking about angels or demons, we're going to talk more about this in a minute, but um, they have a lot in common, and there's a reason for that. Fundamentally, angels and demons are created, powerful, spiritual beings. Angels were created to expressly do the will of God, both in the seen that we see around us and in the unseen. And they're the same thing. Angels and demons are the same thing. They're just operating in different allegiances. They are the same creature. In, the, in, the, in Hebrew, the word malach is the, is the word that is most often used to translate what we translate as angel. And it usually just means messenger. But here's the thing. At one time, angels and demons were all the same thing. There were no actual demons. There were no demons. But what happened is, we learn in Scripture, both, we learn this in both the book of Isaiah and in the book of Ezekiel, these angels, which were created to serve God and to do what God requested and required, at one time in the distant past, there was what is commonly referred to as the war in heaven, where one particular angel, one of the chief angels, his name was Lucifer, actually convinced, we learn in Scripture, a third of the angels to attempt to rebel against God. And the most prominent, poignant picture that we get of this rebellion is actually in the book of Revelation 12, 7 through 9. And I think a lot of times when we read Revelation, we assume that everything in Revelation happens in the distant future. But this is very clearly referencing an event that happened in the distant past. And this is what it says. It's up on the screen. You can kind of see it here. Now war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. As a result, and after that rebellion, Lucifer, whom we now call Satan, and his angels, whom we now call demons— were cast to earth and are bent on continued rebellion against God and his creation, which does include us, but is not limited to us. I think one of the things that we need to understand here is, is that it's not that Satan and his demons hate just you. They hate everything that reflects the character, the image, and the nature of the living God. They actually hate the environment. They do hate trees. They hate whales. They hate anything that reflects the beauty, the character, and the nature of God. They are still seeking to act in rebellion against God. And yes, while that does include us as the crown of creation, the image bearers of the living God, it actually includes everything. They hate all of it. And if God created it and it is important to God, they are seeking to enslave, to ensnare, and to corrupt it. They hate everything. But they have already been judged. They have already been 
condemned. They have already been sentenced to an eternity in the lake of fire forever. Which means, by the way, contrary to popular opinion, Satan and demons do not rule hell. They can't grant authority over so many souls. They, they do not run the place. They are prisoners. They are not the warden. Does that make sense? And they are fallen, judged foes. So, the best that Satan and his demons can do, or hope to do, is to fight a battle which has already been lost, where they have already been judged, and where ultimately they will be cast into eternal separation from God with people who do the same. They can make some havoc until that point. They can try to make our lives pretty miserable, but they will ultimately not succeed in overthrowing God or us as his people. So, to that point, both angels and demons are both spiritual beings, and yes, they do interact with us here in this reality. And their activities are well documented throughout Scripture and throughout human history for the several thousand years of human experience. Angels were with God at the beginning of creation. We learned that in the book of Job. They were present when he spoke everything into existence. They were present when God flushed Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. An angel stood with a drawn sword to prevent them from coming back. An angel announced the birth of Jesus to Mary. Angels appeared to shepherds to herald the birth of the king. Angels walked with the New Testament church, released Peter from prison, and will be present at the end of time. Angels are real, and so are demons. And they are bent either on our help, in the case of angels, or on our harm, in the case of demons. And they are exceptionally and powerfully motivated and equipped to provide it. So, let's talk a little bit about some specifics. Since they are the same thing, it's just now a question of where their allegiances lie. What should we know about them? Well, the first thing that we should know about them is, is that they are both created beings. Without question, God created angels. And they are not equal to him in any way. They are not. They are created. They are subject and subservient to him, not equal with him. In Psalm 8, 4 through 5, we read that, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You made the heavenly beings, and then you made man lower than the heavenly beings. Do you see how that works? They are created beings. God made people. But in that same sentence, we also note that he made the heavenly beings, that he made the people lower than. They are not equal to God. They are created beings just like us. They're a different species of created being, but they are not equal to God. The second thing is, is they are intelligent. Angels and demons both are intelligent, and they are either benevolent in the case of angels or malevolent in the case of demons. And in 2 Corinthians eleven three, Paul reminds us that through cunning, Satan deceived Eve. Like Satan was smart enough to get the queen of creation to rebel against God. In addition to that, in 1 Peter 1.12, we learn that there are things that God has exposed to us through the power of the Holy Spirit that angels don't understand, but that they're curious to look into. Angels and demons are smart. 
that also means that they are immortal and ancient and smart. So here's the thing, friends. If I am an angel and I have had the eternal presence to not only be around and with and for you, but everyone who has come before you and everyone who will come after, I probably know a thing or two about people. And if I'm a demon, it's probably the same way. They are smart. They are practiced. They are aware, right? The next is that they are powerful. Like they are powerful on a whole other level than what we understand. And I will say, like, I am shocked and amazed at how powerful we as beings actually are. If you look at what we have been able to do with, like, as a species, we have completely dominated the entire planet, usually for the bad, but like, like we're sending, we're sending like rockets to other planets now. Like we've harnessed the atom. Like we have nuclear energy. Like we, like we're pretty powerful. But when you talk about angels and demons, it's just on a whole other level. If our power is earthly, their power is cosmic. It's the kind of thing where like they sweep stars out of the heavens right I mean like they set rivers on courses so it's just it's a whole different level of power they are incredibly powerful and demons are powerful as well anytime that I have personally engaged a demon I have been very aware that it is not me that is confronting it or standing before them. It is only me as a servant of the risen Christ. And the one who dwells within me is the one that makes it stand down. But by myself, I couldn't and wouldn't and shouldn't. I am made lower than the angels. It is only because of the authority that Jesus gives me that I can command. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Next, they are... I'm going to say organized, but I also say they are militarily organized. Scripturally, there is this sense that angels and demons operate in hierarchies. They are organized according to layers of command and structure. In Ephesians 6.12, one of my favorite verses, we learn, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Most theologians would tell you that those terms, things like rulers, authorities, and powers, are what would probably be representative of layers. Right? Like they would be like stratified. And sometimes they would even be attached geographically. In the book of Daniel, there is some sense that sometimes angelic and demonic powers are assigned based on geographies, but whatever the issue is, however those things are stacked, you could build a really significant, very quick biblical case to say that they're not just sort of running randomly around. They are organized according to systems of command and control and authority. They are organized. And next, they are scary now, contrary to Renaissance paintings, which depict angels as these sort of like fat little winged cherub babies, biblical angels are awesome to behold. And I'm not talking about like awesome. I'm talking about like fall on your face, panic kind of awesome. There's a reason why anytime we see like in Luke 2, when angels show up, one of the first and most common things that they say to people is don't be afraid. Why? Because people were probably afraid. There's, a, there's an internet meme out right now that just sort of is like, hey, biblical angels be like, right? It's like, they don't look like, really, they don't, they don't look like you expect them to look in like Renaissance paintings. Like they're probably like, whoa, what is that kind of a thing? And demons are the same way. Um, when we read in scripture, right, there's a reason why demons or Satan are referred to by terms like dragon, 
When we see in Mark 5, the man who was possessed by the legion of demons, we learn that the demons have attempted to mar his body, his mind. Like they've stripped him naked, cut his skin with stones. He's a mess. And so anytime that I would say, like, if you ever see something like that in its true form, it's probably going to freak you out. It's going to be scary. Now, if those things are all true, what do we do with that information? So the way we're going to handle this, I'm going to sort of shift gears for a minute. What we're going to do is, is I'm just going to tell you as a pastor, I've actually been very surprised that I've been getting an increasing amount of traffic over the last few years about questions related to this topic. So I think one of the best things for us to do would just be to answer some of those sort of FAQs, right? Like just like, well, okay, if that's all true, then what about this? So let's just handle a couple of these. Do angels still help people today? Yeah, yeah, they do. Like if you have any friends that are cross-cultural overseas missionaries, the vast majority of them have got some kind of story about something. Someone who stood in the middle of them, like someone who protected them, provided for them, helped them in some way. But you know what's interesting? I would have said 30 years ago that, yeah, that probably happens overseas a lot, but I've just never seen it around here. Guess what? I have now. And with some increasing frequency. So I do think that as our culture moves more toward paganism, I do think we will probably become more and more aware of these kinds of supernatural activities around us. So like, let's just talk about what that might look like. Angels do still help people today. I I have some of my own stories, but one of my favorite um, that happened with a friend of mine that I'll just tell you quickly uh, that illustrates this point beautifully. In about the year 2000, my buddy Jay Aquila uh, was going to Taylor University And uh, I I didn't go to Taylor, but I I have people who go to Taylor that, yeah, I love very much. So like, yeah. So um, anyway, was going to Taylor and uh, was, was, uh, he did a spring break trip um, to do a Habitat for Humanity build in Florida. And after the week of slinging a hammer and being exhausted, they all decided to go to the beach for the day. And so Jay went with his buddies. They went down to the beach and there was like a sandbar a couple hundred feet out from shore. And they were all going to paddle out to the sandbar and hang out for a couple of hours. And so Jay was like, that was great. We all got in the water. We all started paddling toward the sandbar. And then he said, like, I was really tired. I don't think I realized how like really tired that I was. And so as his friends were kind of moving out to the sandbar, Jay actually got caught in a riptide. And it started pulling him out to the ocean. And he kind of started to freak out a little bit. And so he said what made it worse is, is every time he would actually kind of get up to the water to take a breath, another wave would crash over and would like, would like hammer him down to the ocean floor. And then he'd have to like scramble and try to like push up. And he just kept getting pulled farther and farther out to the water. And so he tried to call for help and none of his friends could hear him. And they were all having too good of a time. They didn't realize that he was slipping away from them. And so he started to panic. And then to hear Jay tell the story, it's so funny. Like the first time I heard him tell this story, he and I were both in India and we were talking to church planters about angels and demons, right? And so Jay, I've never heard this story before. He like pipes up on this story and I'm like, whoa. And so he's like, okay, so here I am, like literally thinking I'm going to drown, right? And he's like, I barely got my eyes up above water. And he was like, it was like a scene out of Baywatch, man. It was like, I saw this dude like trucking down the shore. He was like bronzed, ripped, red pants, you know, like red shorts. It was like, he was like, wow. Okay. So like that dude jumped in the water and like just started like coming towards him. And he like got out to Jay and Jay said, I remember him saying, don't panic. And then he grabbed me and started to haul me towards shore. He's like, at that point, I'm just like, I'm just like being dragged by this guy. And then another lifeguard who had this longboard saw us and started paddling out to us. And as that guard got out to us, the first guard grabbed me by the neck, hauled me up out of the water and put me onto the longboard because I was so physically exhausted I couldn't do it myself. And then the guard with the longboard paddled me back to shore. 
And when I got off the board and kind of got my breath a little bit, right, I just told the guard, I was like, man, thanks, I don't know what you, I don't know what I would have done if you guys didn't come out there. And the guard's like, you guys. He was like, yeah, the first guard out there. He's like, there was no other guard out there. What are you talking about? He was like, no, you know, the, the first guard. He's like, there was no other guard. When I got to you, it was just you. And so Jay was like, oh, <laughs> right? And like Jay, Jay's only explanation for that is it's like, look, that had to be an angel. I couldn't have done that on my own. And that was a formative event in Jay's life. So yeah, they still help people today. Well, do we have guardian angels? What about that? Well, this one's a little tricky. So like we're going to address this in a couple of different ways. I will tell you, there is no passage of scripture that talks about each person having a specialized, direct guardian angel designated to care for them and to watch over them. But we do know that angels have a protective role and that there does appear to be some sort of attachment to us as humans. For example, we learn in Psalm 34, 7 that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. So for those of us who fear and seek the Lord, there is protection. And then Jesus actually says this very cryptic thing in Matthew 18, 10, when speaking about children, he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Now what he means by their angels, we're not actually sure. But it would seem to imply that there is some sort of attachment, right? Like, I mean, there by nature is a, is a possessive form of the word. So whether that's one or many or whether they're designated or whether they're, like, I, we, we don't really know. But we do know that there is a general belief that there is assignment and attachment in some form. I don't, I don't know what all that means. And we do know also in Acts 12, 15, this very interesting thing happens where Peter's in prison. He is rescued and liberated from prison. And then Peter goes wandering out into the city looking for a place to go. There's a house church meeting. Peter knocks on the door. The little girl comes to the door, sees that it's Peter. And rather than opening the door, she actually runs in and tells everybody that it's Peter. <laughs> you just picture Peter just sort of standing there like, hey, is somebody going to let me in? You know? And what the text actually says is, is that people didn't believe her. They assumed it was his angel. Now, we know that we don't become angels when we die. So the way that you would interpret that would be like, I don't know. But like they believed there was something that was assigned to Peter in some way that was functioning as a messenger that Peter was dead or out of prison or something, right? So how does that all work? I don't know. That's a matter of some conjecture. But we do know that from a scriptural point of view, there does appear to be some sort of connection or attachment. And that, that's just going to have to suffice, if that makes sense. Okay, well, what about spirits, ghosts, or other things that don't fit the typical description of angels or demons? I mean, by extension, can we talk about ghost hunters, ghostbusters, mediums, spiritists, supernatural events, supernatural cryptids, creatures, or other things that don't appear to be expressly angelic or demonic? What about all of that stuff? That's a great question. And again, it's one that's particularly pertinent for us because our culture is asking that question a lot. I had coffee with a young friend, and he wanted to know all about that stuff. Like, had been to church, he thought, maybe once one time, but wasn't sure. But, like, wanted to ask me, like, hey, you're a pastor. What about, and he started, like, telling me all these shows, right? What about ghost hunters and spirit this and that? I mean, like, he was, like, asking all that. So, like, if our culture is asking, we should probably have a good answer. So, what I would say is, is, first, for the most part, Scripture would tell you that there is no other category of things. It's either of God or of Satan. It's either angelic 
or demonic. In 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through 20, when speaking about food sacrificed to idols, Paul actually says this, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what people sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be the participants with demons. You see, in that century, people like the pagans thought that they were offering sacrifices to their ancestors, to gods, to goddesses, to whatever. But Paul just says that all of it is demonic and that we should steer away from it. One additional seeming proof of this is when King Saul consults a witch before a battle. So if you guys remember, King Saul was king of Israel. Um, He was going up in this battle and he wanted to find out if he was going to live or die. And so Saul had attempted to rid Israel of all of the mediums and spiritists and fortune tellers and things like that. Like it was punishable by death. He'd attempted to rid the country of all of them. But now that he really wanted to talk to Samuel, the prophet who had died, Paul kind of needed to, Saul needed like help. So he went and like under cover of darkness, sought out a witch at this place called Endor. And the Ewoks came. And I'm just kidding. It's like, anyway, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just totally kidding. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, sorry. Okay. So he did go to this witch and she was at a place called Endor. And he asked her to conjure Samuel the prophet. And she did. And then she freaked out. In 1 Samuel 28, we actually read Samuel shows up. And then she knows something is different than what she normally experiences. That tells me a couple of things. It tells me she didn't normally expect actual people to show up. That tells me that what she was normally working with was demons. So if you have someone that's like, yeah, but I just really want to talk to my dead grandma. It's like, well, you're going to be talking to a demon. This was an anomaly. This was very clearly an anomaly. And even the witch knew it. So, it tells me that when God says throughout Scripture that we are not to consult mediums, spiritists, sorcerers, or others who claim to be able to channel the dead or other spirits, he is serious about it. Because by doing so, we invite things into our life that you shouldn't and you don't want there. And you are seeking power, information, and control from a source other than God. That's called idolatry. It's a problem. Okay, so... Pastor Marvin, by the way, is going to talk about that a little bit more in a couple of weeks, so you want to stay tuned for that. But I will allow for the fact that we serve an infinitely creative God. So maybe there are other kinds of spiritual entities besides angels and demons. Maybe there are. I don't know what they are, but maybe there are. Here's what I do know, though, that either way, even if there are, they are still going to conform to the categories of angelic, demonic, evil, or good, God versus Satan. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality in that respect. And scripture is also very clear about what to do with those kinds of things when you're talking about the origin of something like that. In 1 John 4, 1 through 3, this is what it says. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. So even if there are other things besides angels and demons, they still have to pass the spirit test. Do they conform to the lordship of Jesus and acknowledgement of him or don't they? 
And if they don't, you just don't want anything to do with them. And if they do, they are servants of God. You don't pray to them. You don't try to command those things. God commands those things. But either way, that's how you tell the difference. Okay. Can a Christian be possessed by a demon? Believe it or not, I've personally had this question begin to surface kind of a lot. And the short answer is no. Nope. Here's why. Amen. Let me tell you why. Because in 1 Corinthians 6.20, we learn that for you were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. Here and elsewhere in scripture, we learn that when we invite Jesus Christ into our life, when we submit our lives to his lordship as savior and king, what happens is, is we are officially moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. We are moved from death to life. There is a transaction that occurs where the blood of Jesus Christ pays for you and your sin, and you are then moved to the eternal kingdom of the living God. It is legal. It is transactional. It is eternal. If you are in Christ, you are bought at a price. John 10, 27 through 29 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And get this, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see, if it were possible for a follower of Jesus to be possessed, then we'd literally be saying that Satan is strong enough to somehow pry open God's fingers and take out of them what rightfully belongs to him. And I will just tell you guys, like, he's just not that strong. And neither are you. It is, however, possible for a person who is a follower of Jesus, who has been bought by him, to be oppressed significantly by demonic forces. And even if they are not possessed by them, Scripture does say the same. In fact, I want to direct you to a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. This is what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. As, and, as, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now that seems harsh, but Paul notes here that it is possible that that person was actually genuinely a follower of Jesus, but that his enslavement to sin was so great and so significant that upon his death, he would still at least be with God. And honestly, if you are here today and you are like, oh man, okay, well then I have some serious oppression I can't get past this hurt, this habit, this hang-up, this thing, this addiction, this what, like, okay, like, I may belong to him, but I am seriously still shackled and enslaved to whatever this other thing that opposes God is. I would just tell you, hey, welcome to the club, guys. 
All of us are in various states and stages of healing and restoration. The good news is, is that if you belong to Jesus, he actually not only is capable, but wants to say, hey, you want to smash that? You know what? Why don't you come to me and through confession and repentance, through cleansing and restoration, like I can actually smash that. Like you you think that that's just part? Yeah, thank you. Um, You think that's just part of your life? You think I designed you to have a pornography addiction? I didn't design you for that. You want to be free of that? I can smash that shackle. You're codependent with your child? You need them to reinforce and validate you? you? Like, I didn't design that. You want to be free of that? I can smash that shackle. We serve a God and a king who I don't care what your oppression is. He can liberate you from it. But if you are in Christ, possession is not possible even if oppression is. Do you understand the difference between possession and oppression? Possession's about ownership. Okay? What do you do if you encounter a demon or a person influenced by one? Okay, friends, I, again, need to be able to talk about the fact that I really do think we are moving to a place in our current culture where the likelihood that you may have to address this issue is actually likely. I don't know about you guys, but I see pagan stuff on cars all the time. Like I, like, I fully believe that, like, it may be the kind of thing that in your workplace, you engage something and you're like, hey, that's not just, like, that's, no, that's actually something else. So what do you do about that? This is not just one of those questions that, well, Jack, that's fine. I would just bring people to you. I'd be like, no, hold on. Hold on. This is about what you're going to need to be able to do. I think that we are a church that is going to have to continue to deal with this kind of thing. Uh, one of my seminary professors says, um, I've mentioned this before. He says, we think we are a church who is increasingly having to deal with a secular world. We are not. We are an increasingly secular church dealing with an increasingly pagan world. And I think we're going to have to get better at that. So what do you do? Well, the first answer is, is that if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you have not given your life to the reigning King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the simple answer is, is that you should not seek to deal with it. If you are here this morning, or you are listening to me online, and you have not given your life to Jesus, and the answer, and the question is, well, what do I do if I engage something demonic? The answer is, you don't. Because you don't have authority to do so. If you are not in Christ, you do not have the authority to tell anything demonic, anything. And if you try, it could go very badly for you or for the person that is being affected. We learn this in Acts 19, 13 through 16. We read this story. Check this out. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So if you do not know Jesus, the answer is pretty easy. If you run into something directly demonic and you wonder how you should engage in it, don't. Contrary to what you see on television or movies, this just always blows my mind, nothing demonic has to listen to you if you confront it in the name of good. I don't care about that stuff. In the name of good. 
If you are not addressing it under the authority of the Spirit of the living God, through the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, it doesn't have to listen to you at all. So don't try. But if you do know Jesus, you have the same authority that Jesus does. That should blow your mind a little bit. You have the very authority, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you. And anything demonic has to obey that. In Romans 8, 11, we learn, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That means that you have the authority of Jesus. And if Jesus could command demons to leave someone, you can too. Now you might be saying, I don't know how to do that. Be like, yeah, guess what? First time I engaged someone who was possessed, I didn't either. I was 17. I was on the field in Budapest, Hungary. I was doing a summer-long mission trip with an organization. Uh, It was right after the fall of communism. This is in 1991. I'm with a group of teenagers. We're doing street evangelism in Budapest. And this kid walks up to me. I say kid, he was my age. And like, he looked bad. He looked bad, guys. Like he was emaciated, like long, like thick, greasy, black hair. He would like look at me out of the top of his head when he would try to talk to me, kind of like sway. Like, he was like, it was like, okay. And he was like, his clothes were all torn up. Like he had like monsters on his shirt from like this band called Obituary. I've never listened to them, but yeah, like you can kind of get the idea, right? He had razor blade marks all up and down his arms. Like honestly, the first thing I thought of was exactly how the man in the gatherings is described in Mark 5. The only difference was is that this guy was clothed right? And so like he walks up to me and I'm kind of like, hi. And <laughs> it's me. So like he was like, hi. You know, so um, he like tells me very quickly through very broken English, his name is Peter. He's like, my name is Peter. And in like this broken English, he's like, my God is death and I worship darkness. And I'm like, mm, okay. And so like, as we tried to talk a little bit, he eventually like reaches out and grabs my arm. And then he like starts to like talk, but it's not talking. Like he started to like utter these sounds that like don't come from human vocal cords. It's like this really deep guttural kind of like thing. And I'm telling you what guys, like 17 years old, I didn't have any idea what to do. You know what I did though? (laughs) Thankfully the organization that I was with, they had a really high bent for scripture memory. So I just started quoting verses in in English, (laughs) right? So like I just start quoting every verse that I can think of, like rapid fire as fast as I can think of them. You would have thought I would have drawn a pistol from my hip and put the barrel on his head. His eyes got huge. He started to like back up and try to scramble away from me. My team immediately was like, you know what I mean? Like we like, we like took Peter inside. We like prayed over him. It took a couple of hours. But what I will tell you is, is over the course of a couple of hours through deep and intensive prayer in partnership with our Hungarian brothers and sisters that we were there to serve, whatever was in Peter left. Yeah, praise to God. And when I walked him home, like I was walking home, like we were laughing and talking about sports, right? A couple days later, I learned from, I learned that like his mom called the church and the pastor was like telling us about this. And like the mom called the church and she was like, what did you do to my son? And the pastor's like, uh, why? What's wrong? She's like, wrong? Nothing's wrong. He came downstairs and ate breakfast. He took a shower. He was wearing regular clothes. We had a conversation at the dinner table. What did you do to him? And who are you? (laughs) Right? So I learned later, like after I left, that like she and Peter started coming to that church. Like, that is what I would tell you is like, hey, look, guys, if as a dumb 17-year-old kid who doesn't know how to do any more than just quote scripture, 
right? Like, you don't have to be some sort of super exorcist to stand your ground in the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. If you belong to him, you can do that. I tell you that story because I didn't know what I was doing. Now, I didn't do it lightly, but you can do it prayerfully and with confidence in the one to whom you belong because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You can act like it. So how common are angels and demons? I have no idea. No idea. When it it talks about how Satan took a third of the angels, I don't know whether that was five, 500, 5,000, 5 million, 5 trillion, 5 billion, 5 whatever comes after that. Nobody knows how many that is. How active are they in the world? I don't know. All I know is, is that they are. And so here's what I would tell you. I do think that oftentimes the things that we ascribe to angelic and particularly demonic activity probably aren't. They just sort of help us feel better about it. Have you ever met a guy who's like, oh man, enemy's really after me. Enemy's really after me to get to me to cheat on my taxes. I'm just telling you. Right? Be like, you know, that might just be your flesh. You know, you've got an inherent pre, like you've got an inherent predisposition to like rebel, right? To take the like you've got an inherent disposition as a human being to accord to your flesh. And the world system around you is trying to help your flesh as much as it can. But just because you're being tempted doesn't automatically mean that there's a demonic influence. It might just be your flesh. It might just be how close you are to the world system around you. In my experience, the flesh and the world have far more to do with the patterns of sin and belief and lies in our lives than direct demonic activity. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. I'm just telling you that that's just kind of been my experience. But to the question, I'm also not sure how much that happens or how deeply that effect is. I just know for me, I would rather assume that they are active and involved, and then to be ready to engage in either direction if the opportunity presents itself. So I'm not looking for it. I'm not hunting for it. I'm not trying to designate it everywhere I see. But if it shows up, I am ready for it. Does that make sense? I don't know how much they are or aren't, so I'm just ready for it. Okay, well, do pastors, priests, elders, deacons, clergy have more authority to engage the demonic than other Christians? No. Absolutely not. Now, we might have more experience. We might have more training. We might have more tactical knowledge. But that's different from authority, brothers and sisters. You don't need to come to church, speak with a pastor, ask me or Marvin to do, sprinkle some kind of mojo on something that you don't have. We don't have more of the Holy Spirit than you do. We don't have more authority than you do. You have the authority. Scripture says that you have everything that you need for life and for godliness. As a result, I would tell you that it's a myth to think that somehow we can do something that you can't. We can't. Now we can help. We can pray for you, with you. We can equip you. We can teach you. We can train you. We can guide you. And yes, oftentimes we may actually engage something directly to help you, but it's not because we can do something that you can't do or that you don't have the authority to do yourself. A few years ago, right here at Trinity, 
A member called and asked if he could bring a young woman for prayer who was struggling to give her life to Jesus. He'd met her on the street. Uh, He was a street evangelist. I love this guy. And she said that she wanted to give her life to Jesus, but she said that she was being hindered by demonic forces that were threatening her. He told me that she had told him that she had been dedicated by her grandmother to a demon when she had been born. Can you imagine that? And I will tell you, the more that we started talking with her, like the more really gnarly occult stuff had been part of her life. Like it did not, it, it did not shock me when she was talking about, no, there's something actually preventing me from giving my life to Jesus. So I said, yeah, man, we'd love to be, we'd be happy to pray for her. Like go ahead and bring her. And then I had the presence of mind to call in some backup. <laughs> Because I am not a specialist, but I have a friend who has way more experience in dealing with this kind of thing than I do. So I asked if she would be willing to join the prayer session, and she agreed to do so. And when we finally met the young woman, whom I will name Cindy, it didn't take long before we started seeing some pretty crazy stuff, guys. Uh, This was in the prayer chapel. If you didn't know we have a prayer chapel, we do. It's actually on the other side of the student auditorium. It's a really great place. And as we started walking Cindy through, confronting the demonic stuff that was in her life and in her past, her eyes rolled into the back of her head. She started to talk the same way that Peter did in Budapest. The crosses fell off the walls. My cell phone shorted out. And then my friend went to work. She addressed it directly in the name of Jesus. She knew exactly what she was doing. Like it was, I mean, like I'm praying like crazy the whole time. I'm interjecting where I can. And what I will tell you is after a couple of hours, Cindy actually was able to smile and was able to articulate, hey, it's gone. It's gone. And I, like, I can give my life, like I'm giving my life to Jesus. Yeah. And as I processed that with my friend on the backside, what I realized was is um, she didn't have anything that I didn't have. I could have gotten there. I could have stumbled my way through it knowing the things that I know. She just got there faster and much more directly because she knew what she was doing. But it was not a question of authority or the amount of the Holy Spirit that she had or anything else like that. So I tell you, brothers and sisters, you can do what the Spirit of the living God asks you to do. If you don't know how to do that, I want to direct your attention to a couple of resources. So there's a, an insert in your bulletins that walks through a worksheet that we call the three voices. There's an element of that that deals specifically with what we call authoritative prayer. This is kind of a guidepost. If you're like, hey, I don't really know, what would I even say in a situation like that? It'd be like, you say this. It's not magic words. It's not a mantra. It is scripturally relevant. It is directly based on the word of God and the way that Jesus engaged things. But this is how you do it. In addition to that, if you go to wearetrinity.com forward slash resources, there's a bunch of other stuff. If you're like, okay, but Jack, you didn't deal with this passage that talked about the Prince of Persia. With it. Be like, yeah, 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 go there. Like there's all kinds of additional resources. We want to help you. But I will tell you again, you have everything you need to stand your ground in anything that the Spirit of the living God leads you to engage and to do. So, as we close... I'd like to walk through a couple of things to think about in regard to how to move forward from here. And I'll be brief, but here are a couple of things that I think you should note. First, you should be really careful of dabbling. Now, I've kind of already said this, but there are a lot of opportunities in our culture to just sort of, you know, I mean, just dabble a little bit. 
I mean, there's the obvious stuff like Ouija boards, tarot cards, horoscopes, seances, and stuff like that, which by the way, if you do any of those things, like please, I adjure you in the name of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, stop. You are inviting things into your life and your world that you do not want. Looking for guidance, direction, or power from something like that is the opposite of where you're supposed to be seeking it at the feet of the living God. But beyond that, I'm actually talking about the stuff that we engage in our movies, our television, our books, and our video games. I'm not going to stand here and try to tell you which ones you should watch or which ones you should play or which ones you should or shouldn't. I just think you should be mindful. And if it makes light of the spiritual world or it refuses to address it without simultaneously acknowledging the lordship of Jesus Christ, I would just be really wary of it. It's just not worth it. In 1 Peter 5, 8 through 11, we learn that, Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here's the thing. Just don't be lion chow, guys. Don't be an easy target. Don't dabble. Second, remember who you are. I love telling people this. It sounds simple, but it's super important. Remember who you are and to whom you belong. You see, you might think when you look in the mirror that you're a single mom working for an hourly wage without a voice, without advocacy, without a person representing you. But when the enemy of your soul looks at you looking in the mirror, do you know what he sees? He sees a barbarian queen who serves the king of kings and can stand her ground like a kingdom tank. That's what he sees. So remember who you are. My personal opinion is, is that the enemy goes after who you are way more than he goes after what you do. Because if I can convince you that you are worthless and rejected and powerless, you will behave worthlessly, powerlessly, and rejectedly. But if you know who you are in the kingdom of the living God, you will leap barricades, knock down barriers, and drag back into the kingdom of God what rightfully belongs to him. So remember who you are. And the next is remember where and when you are. Guys, I, I think we should stop being surprised when the world around us runs away from the God that we serve. We are aliens and strangers here. We are exiles. In 1 Peter 2, 11, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We don't belong here. Our citizenship is in another place. We are here, but we are here as aliens and strangers. We lament the discord and the deterioration around us, but we should stop being shocked by it. I'm, I'm shocked when my brothers and sisters are shocked that the world is running away from Jesus as fast as it can. And next, we are soldiers and emissaries. We have a very real role as soldiers and emissaries. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, 
God making his appeal through us. We are soldiers who engage in the very real spiritual and practical battle to take back from the kingdom of darkness what rightfully belongs to our God and our King. And when we see people deeply connected, tethered to other sources of life and hope other than Jesus, and often in things that are directly or overtly demonic or satanic in nature, it is we who are the agents of the kingdom of God who engage them directly and who also stand our ground in the name of Jesus, we do it without tethering ourselves too deeply or too closely with those same forces as well. We are the representatives, the agents, the emissaries, the ambassadors of the kingdom of the living God. We smash doors. We take back what rightfully belongs to our God and King so that it can understand and experience the life that he offers. Again, I am not telling you the specifics of what you must or must not do. My family, my family's raised some eyebrows. We do things like Halloween parties. We do play role-playing games. We've invited people in. But here's the thing. When we do those things, we are very aware of the reason, the mission, and the purpose for doing so. We know to whom we belong. And we are on mission with him where he leads. So, I'm going to ask our prayer team, our elders and our deacons to come down front. And I just want to conclude with a reminder, and then I'll pray for us. I'll just tell you that at the end of this, like, angels and demons are not something to be afraid of. You don't need to spend a lot of time thinking about it. I don't, I don't want you to leave and, like, be fixating on, like, there's a demon behind every rock. I just know it. You don't need to pray to your guardian angels. In fact, if I were a guardian angel, I would tell you to stop. That's actually what happens in the book of Revelation. When John falls down to like worship or to like engage an angel, they tell him, stop. Like, don't. You don't trust in your guardian angels. You trust in the God who created them. You trust, you seek, and you move forward. And thank God that we have the authority that we need to do what we need to do to serve him. And thank God that he has resources like angels to bring to bear when we need help. But I would remind you that Romans 8, 38 and 39 reminds us very specifically that I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any power, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You have everything you need for life and godliness. Yeah, amen. And now, brothers and sisters, I'd love to close us in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the commander of the heavenly host of angels, the one who is victorious over Satan and all of his demons. And we thank you that we have bold access, like Dave said, We come right to your throne, not because of who we are, but because of what you have done. And your spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and by whom we call out, Abba, Father. So Father, I bless my brothers and my sisters in the name of Jesus, the matchless Son of God. I ask as they go into the highways, the byways, the dark 
places where you send them, Father, that they would stand their ground, that you would send angels to protect and provide open doors, smash barricades, and Father, that you would set to flight anything that is dark or demonic as they tread into those spaces. Father, would you empower them, encourage them to take back what rightfully belongs to you in the name of Jesus as we go forward from this place together. Amen. Amen. Go in peace, brothers and sisters.